Well, hello, Daniel. It's good to see you again. Good to see you, Damarato. And that um, one of the things that you had just mentioned was is that you were trying a lot of different practices or a lot of different meditations from this and that feature and place. Is, is that? If you want the executive summary, I didn't. I didn't no, try that I many do things. Not. No, I don't. <laughs> I didn't show off around too much, not too much. Okay. I just did the breathing. I just read Daniel Ingram's book, The Breathing, and then the Vipassana, the focus on body sensations, those two. And that's pretty much it. So pretty simple. Well, any instruction that uh, that starts, stays on, and ends with uh, focus on or take an object of meditation, and this is the object that we present to you. Go look at what we're talking about, okay? Any book that does that yeah. is off track. A much better way of saying is, is that here, practice on this object of meditation, and when you get good at practicing on stability of the mind, we've got a whole bunch of stuff for you to look at. We've got the entire Satipatthana. We've got body all over the body. We've got feelings all over the feelings. We've got thoughts all over the thought world. And we've got ups and downs and backs and forth and starts and finishes and cessations and relinquishments and all of that kind of stuff are objects that are to be taken one at a time as they occur. And yet Western mentality get focused on all oh, this meditation technique of focusing on this object is a different meditation technique than someone who is focusing on a different object. And because of that, they're in competition and both. Uh, there's a story that Buddha teaches about this, and that is the story of the 10 blind men uh, fondling an elephant. Have you ever heard that story? Uh, I believe you told it that they all fondle a different part of the elephant mm -hmm. and then they all come away with a different interpretation. Is that correct? Right. That's Western Buddhism for you. Okay. And I'm trying to introduce to you that the places that you've been feeling around is just part of the elephant that exists. So are you saying don't focus on on one particular object? Are you saying like focus on everything? No, I'm not saying any one of those things. I'm saying, in fact, that we learn first to focus on objects. And then after we get really good at that, and the way that we would consider being good at that is by the hallmark or the roadmap marker of the first genre. So okay. once that you've gotten the mind into the first jhana using whatever focus or technique that you use to get into the first jhana, now we've got a whole list of things that we are going to be paying attention to, which is, or in fact, now the wholesome aspects of what we were doing in the first place to get into first jhana. Now, I know that that sounds humorous, but now that we're in the first jhana, we can see what is there, but we can see it with a wholesome, clear mind rather than seeing it flashing back and forth amongst all the unwholesome stuff. But there is stuff to be inspected, stuff to be investigated. And what are some of the items on the list 
is watching how you apply the mind to the object and then watching how you can sustain on the object no matter what. That in fact, that's the applied and the sustained and that should be the object of the meditation and not the meditation object itself. The object of the meditation is can you apply the mind to an object and keep it there? Ah, so what else is worth um, as an object? Another object is the object of how good we feel, how satisfied we are. In other words, we're talking about the object now of sukha. Taking the object of sukha means that we make sure that we're taking the object of there is nothing to fear here now. And then we take the object of, wow, how comfortable I am just sitting here, no place to go and nothing to do. And then we focus upon being satisfied. And we start working with that satisfaction. And when we get that feeling of satisfaction, that's actually the aspect of the first jhana, especially since we've been focusing also on focusing on the object. In other words, back to the applied and sustained thought. And now we are actually uh, having the object of sustaining the mind on pleasure and joy and satisfaction. Then we take other objects. And as we take other objects like um, pity, and then equanimity, and then various aspects of the mind that are in um, the list of Paticca Samapada, as well as other wholesome objects like the Eightfold Noble Path and the Four Noble Truths, these are really worthy objects of focusing on. Mm-hmm. Rather than focusing a little bit and then having unwholesome thoughts coming around and dancing around and then a little bit more focusing on the Four Noble Truths. Now we can actually stay on the Four Noble Truths while we know that we're staying on the Four Noble Truths as an object. Okay. okay. So um, then we can begin to notice the rising and falling of everything that we could notice. So the first we begin to notice Anicca, everything is in turmoil, everything is in flux, but we really have to stand back with a very, very stable mind to be able to see the dance that is reality. Because when we're in the dance, we can't see the dance routine very well. The, uh, the dancers who were on the dance floor on stage doing the dance, She's very much concerned, that dancer, with how she fits into the immediate little group that she's in. But it's only the audience that are sitting way back can see the show. And how all of the girls in the dance line are actually in chorus with one another. That's why they call it a chorus line. Right? And so this is what we begin to do then, is we begin after we get very, very stable, is we begin to draw back. So we can now begin to see all of the objects that we used to focus on one at a time. Now we can focus them on them as kind of a group and see how this whole show operates, how the mind works. Okay, so that's a bit, a little bit deeper uh, part of the focus. But first we got to uh, figure out what objects are worthy of paying attention to. Yeah. Because before in the time of the Buddha, And while he was learning and practicing with various teachers, he was given all kinds of inappropriate, unuseful objects. But he did learn the skill of being able to focus on an object. 
All right. Basically, <clears throat> the objects that he took that were unworthy of his focus, but he gained the skill of focus anyway, were things like the casinos, fire meditation, sky gazing, water gazing, um, <clears throat> the, actually the four elements, all in any of the four elements, only mm -hmm. outside. And he turned that around and says, no, we need to focus on all of the elements and any element will do, but we need to focus on eventually all of the elements on the inside. And so then the casino meditations become the body and the water meditations become the feelings and the fire meditation, that which consumes and burns things down is the mind. And then the smoke that's left as the residue or the thoughts or the clouds. Mm. So these are the four aspects, the Kaya Nupassana, the Veda Nupassana, the Chitta Nupassana, and the Dhamma Nupassana. But that's in a formalized order. But that is not necessarily the order of practice. It's the order of introduction. So Anapanasati is set up in that order to where the body comes first with the breathing. And then the knowledge of the body and eventually the uh, tranquility of the body. But that is not the order that is to be practiced because the body never will come to rest until the mind has already gotten quite a lot of rest. So as long as the mind is doing this, the body is going to be doing some of that too. In order to get the body to rest, got to work on other aspects of Anapanasati too. There are other objects to take than just the body. But for some reason, Goenka's method has gotten settled on, we're going to do Anapanasat 3 until we rot here. And that's what they do. They do that body scanning when it's only just a little of, just step three of a 16-step process. So, okay, okay. Okay. So, what would be a good chronological sequence then? Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, there is an actually quite um, excellent, reasonable chronological sequence that are set up, and this is called the seven factors of enlightenment in the Paliyas to Sambhojana. And they have an order to them in the sense that it's going to build on one another. And the first one on the list of uh skills and actually the way that we're referring to these is skills after they have been developed so that now as they have been developed they are now factors of the awakening mm -hmm. they're not skills in development the practice of anapanasati is to get the skills into development and we do anapanasati then for the fulfillment of the sambojana Okay, Which is, the what is the Sambhojana? Sambhojana. It are the seven factors of enlightenment okay, that I'm okay. about to list for you, okay. but not go into detail. Okay. Okay, so that you get the chronological order down, and then we can see how that operates in the moment by moment. Okay. okay. All right, so the first item on the list is unremitting mindfulness, unremitting sati. Now, what this word unremitting actually means is we keep coming back, we keep coming back, we keep coming back. Most Western Western meditators say that, oh, we've got to stay there all the time. 
that unremitting mindfulness means that we're there all the time, and that's not going to be possible. No one can live their life like that. That we can't do it that way. That in fact, it's a, a pax of coming back and coming back and coming back until you're in a rhythm of coming back, like a, a, a drum, uh, a hammer, uh, a mallet beats a drum. Okay, so many people think that uh, mindfulness should be like this, but a drum and a mallet don't do the drum and the mallet's work. But the mallet, if it comes back and hits and hits and hits and hits and hits, kind of in a rhythm, unremitting, back yeah. and forth, over and over again, almost like in a cycle. Mm-hmm. Now we have a rhythm going. So that's unremitting mindfulness. And with unremitting sati comes next is the unremitting investigation. To look at what the mind is doing. So the unremitting. Sorry, could you explain it again? Investigation is the word that you missed. Unremitting. Unremitting investigation. Unremitting looking, unremitting watching, unremitting inspection, unremitting of watch the show, look at what's happening, look at what you're doing. Okay. That's the whole point of it is to remember to look at what's going on. That's what we mean by the investigation. Unremitting investigation can only happen with unremitting sati. You can see the connection. Mm Mm-hmm. And as we gain the skill, our uh, right efforts wind up being unremitting uh, energy. In other words, we can still keep going. We, we, we gain persistence. We gain that regularity and that rhythm in it. And so it's actually we can call this enthusiasm, unremitting enthusiasm is how is how our uh what used to be unremitting or actually just effort effort then becomes right effort and as it becomes right effort it becomes unremitting right effort and as it becomes unremitting right effort it becomes unremitting enthusiasm so we keep coming back and coming back enthusiastically all right and so that's something that we can put in there that's number three Number four on the list is unremitting pitisukha. And then after that is unremitting relaxation. And that should take us far enough for the moment. Okay. In fact, that unremitting relaxation, that uh, fifth item on the list, is in fact step four of Anapanasati of to relax the body. And when it becomes a mind, uh, uh, an enlightenment factor, is that we can relax and keep relaxing. And keep relaxing. And any tension that comes up, we can just relax again because we're watching what's going on with the body mm-hmm. and the feelings and the mind. But we have to take each one individually as an object. Okay. Yeah. So now that we've got the seven factors of enlightenment, at least um, as a as a clue, now we can look at the Eightfold Noble Path itself. Because there, the source of those seven factors of enlightenment is is stated right there in the path or the method that we're using or practicing. That is, right, noble sati is to remember to wake up and take a look. And if we continue to practice waking up so that we can take a look and waking up and waking up and waking up, it will someday become unremitting. 
Okay. Meaning so, relentless. Okay. Yeah. Relentless. That's another word for it. It's relentless. Okay. It will not let go, but in the sense of uh, being chased relentlessly rather than being caught and imprisoned relentlessly. This is not like this. It's keep coming. It's repeating. Yeah, it just keeps happening. Keep happening over and over and over again because we've been practicing that rhythm of having it happen over and over and over again. Okay. The, Repetition, by the way, is one of the most important teaching techniques for this so that the students get into the point that, oh, this is not can I do it really well? It's that can I keep doing it good enough every time over and over and over and over and over again? That that's the sequence. Is to just get good enough to be able to keep doing it over and over again and stop trying to get it right. Or doing it good enough so that I don't have to keep doing it. No, the scale is is develop it so that we keep doing it over and over and over again. But we've got the energy and the effort to do that because that's also the skill. Mm -hmm. Okay, so back to the Eightfold Noble Path, then. Um, right Noble Sati to wake up and see what the mind is doing right now with the discrimination of is this a wholesome thought or not? Next that we do, and that by the way would be related to step nine of Anapanasati of investigating the mind, and also on the Eightfold Noble Path as right view or right viewing, also on the uh, uh, seven factors of enlightenment as investigation, unremitting investigation. So when we do that investigation, what that means is we're doing it with discrimination and determination about what's the difference between is this thought worth having or not? Does this thought make scratch? Or is this thought unwholesome? Is this thought worth having? That's the question. Is this thought worth having or not? Yeah. And, and if it's not worth having, then we throw it out and change the mind to having something that's worthwhile having a thought about. Mm -hmm. So if we're having an object of relaxation, then we want to make sure that the thoughts that we're having are relaxing thoughts, not thoughts that keep us unrelaxed. Okay. Okay. So uh, as we are developing this um, unremitting investigation and unremitting effort now, developing that, we take the right effort to throw that thought out and replace it with some wholesome thought. As we do that, this is step 10 of Anapanasati called gladdening the mind. And as we're gladdening the mind, basically we're having wholesome thoughts and those wholesome thoughts now are saying things like, everything is okay, everything is fine, no worries, no problems, everything is okay, wow, I don't need anything at all. I'm completely satisfied. These are the kind of thoughts that we begin to develop. And then we experience that the body is falling along. We literally start talking ourselves into feeling good. Because we've been spending our whole lives talking ourselves into feeling bad and not knowing what thoughts made us feel good and which ones made us feel bad. Now we're going to make that choice. Is this thought going to make me, if I keep thinking about this, is that going to make me feel good and, and satisfied? Or is this thought, if I keep having that kind of thought, 
like maybe sending an email to the boss. Mm -hmm. 99% of the time, sending an email to the boss is not going to give you one good feelings. But it is possible that you're going to spring a great big surprise on the boss and give him something very happy. And then you're very happy and excited to write that email. Yeah. Okay. All right. So now that we know that writing emails is not the point, it's how do we feel about writing the emails? And so if you're thinking about writing an email, there's going to be trouble uh, and you want to get it over with, then that means that go write it and get it over with instead of sitting here thinking about it and feeling bad. Yeah. Instead, we mindfully wake up. I'm not at the computer. I don't have that email. I'm not writing it right now. I'm not going to think about it. Because while I'm thinking about it, I feel bad. I'm not going to think, feel bad. I'm going, well, I don't have to think about that email right now. Isn't that marvelous? I don't yeah. have to think about it. I can think about something that's nice that's happening actually right now. Okay, so now we begin to actually do the relaxation, which is actually the Vedana of coming out of unsatisfactory uh, feelings like fear, regret, anger, remorse, guilt, you know the, the routine, you've had all of those feelings, okay? Sure. And when you feel that, you don't especially want to feel that, but you do feel that way because of the thoughts and the circumstances and all of that. Well, now we can say I can change my thoughts and therefore change my circumstances. So now I can tell myself thoughts that make me feel safe and secure and comfortable and satisfied and even successful at being satisfied. Okay. And so these are the thoughts that we're going to start having. Are yeah. the thoughts that are wholesome. Thoughts about there is no dangers here. Thoughts about this chair is comfortable enough. My tush is comfortable enough. My knees are comfortable enough. Everything is okay. No problems, no worries. I'm comfortable enough. And now I can be satisfied that I'm comfortable. Yeah. This is a good banana. Yeah. Do you, do you ever... Yeah. Well, this breath is a good banana. Yeah. Or if you're eating a banana, I mean. Anything that makes you feel Any, good. Whatever you're doing. Whatever you're doing, you have a choice about how you feel about it. Uh-huh. And this is a marvelous wake up for anyone to recognize that you do have control over how you feel. And the way you control how you feel is by what you're thinking. And what you're thinking is controlled by your attitude. Right. And so if you clean up your attitude, then you'll clean up your thinking and then that will clean up your feelings. Mm -hmm. Giving you a sense of whoopee, of joy. Wow, huh, what a relief this is. <laughs> I can do this. That's the feeling that we're looking for, that feeling of satisfaction and joy. That's the piti sukha. And so now that we have that state of, wow, I could do this. Now I can look at how I'm doing it. Watch the factors and the features of how I'm getting this done. I'm putting a whole package together moment by moment. Wholesome thoughts lead to wholesome feelings. Wholesome feelings lead to wholesome relaxation of the body. So that's kind of the investigation aspect of it, right? There's yes. mindfulness, which is just noticing 
and then investigating Remember. what you're doing. Yeah. Remember to notice. The investigation is the noticing. So what's the, the difference between the mild? The, sorry. But noticing is not enough. That's where the Mahasi method stops. They don't continue to the next step of the Eightfold Noble Path, and that is just to make a change, the right effort to change what's in the mind. Otherwise, we just notice and notice dukkha, and there it is, and we notice it again, and there it is again, and we notice dukkha again, and there it is again, and that's our meditation. Yeah. Chasing our own tail. <clears throat> no, we've got to make a change. We've got to notice that that stuff is unwholesome and change it to something wholesome. That's the point. But we've got to remember to keep doing this. Over and over and over. Over and over and over and over again. So we need to have a kind of sati that's unremitting. It does it over and over and over again. This little cycle of waking up, look at what you're thinking and change it to something more wholesome. Okay. That's a little cycle that we go through, not just one object. It's a whole bunch of stuff that we've got to put together, little tiny micro steps. Okay. Actually, you say there are four steps that we have to keep doing over and over and over again, and it happens immediately. What are they? Remember to look and to change and to feel satisfied about it. Remember to feel good. Remember to feel good, basically, is exactly it in the shorthand. Or just mm -hmm. don't worry, be happy. And that's even a shorter way of saying it. Uh-huh. Stop worrying. Don't worry. Be happy. Or as the Buddha would say, dukkha, dukkha naroda. What's that? Well, dukkha is, Suffering. oh, you see this unhappiness. This, yeah, that's a pretty heavy-duty word. A better word, uh, the actual meaning is unsatisfying, unsatisfactory, not quite good enough. Not quite good enough. Okay. It comes out of judgmental thoughts. Uh -huh. And it gives you the feeling because any time that you are judging things as to good or bad, anything that you judge as good has got something else that's bad. You're creating a duality. Mm. And create that duality about half the time you're going to wind up on that which you don't like. Yeah. But if you Stop making that duality by stop judging things and just say this, whatever it is, is okay. Mm -hmm. It's completely different than that critical mind that we have of making a judgment calls and then feeling bad about them, setting rules we can't follow. Then we okay. have thoughts like, oh, this is too hard. Yeah. Or there I go again, or wow, this meditation stuff is hard. Those are just unwholesome thoughts. So we catch those thoughts and we change them to wholesome thoughts. Okay. So this might be what you consider like an irrelevant question, maybe. All questions are irrelevant. Fair enough. So what was the issue with the fire casinos and all that? What was the problem with that? 
Uh, when somebody comes out of whatever state that they're in because they did a fire meditation or the same guy that they were when they went into the fire meditation, it's not curative the way that this process is because mm-hmm. this is something we're doing on the inside. Yeah. That practice is assumed that the fire is doing some of the work or all of the work. I was watching your talk with Daniel Ingram. And you said it doesn't matter how about fire casino. Uh It doesn't matter how deep you go into the medicate meditation, because if you don't do the right things when you get there, it's a waste of time. And once you get out, if you don't do the right things, it's a waste of time. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just said that. Right. Just using different sentence structures. Right, right, right. Again, it's the same point, right? Expecting the fire meditation to do something for us. As as opposed to using whatever state that we've got in with the fire meditation in order to see what's going on. Mm-hmm. So if we just start seeing what's going on, then the fire meditation itself was irrelevant. <laughs> right. Oh, and back to the little snicker about all questions are irrelevant. Yeah, sure. Because all questions are because there's some doubt in the mind. And Mm. doubt is a hindrance to the practice. So not only are questions irrelevant, they're actually harmful. While the mind is questioning, it's not investigating, it's questioning, it's mulling, it's trying to fit old data together to try to make sense out of the past. Yeah. And if we stop doing that and stop asking questions and just be here now and watch what's going on, we don't have any questions. We are not full of doubt. We can actually clean the mind and have wholesome thoughts instead. Okay. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't answer questions. And in fact, that just gives me an opportunity to yabber on. And I like doing that. (laughs) (laughs) But that's only what questions are. When you don't have any questions, you're satisfied. When you do have questions, you're dissatisfied. Notice that, too. And so the answer to that, then, is we don't need to know everything. We just need to know enough right now to feel satisfied. Yeah. So any questions about how do I practice meditation are actually irrelevant. Not just irrelevant, but questions about how do I practice or what object do I take of meditation, that is a hindrance. And we should see that as a hindrance. So that we say, I don't have to figure out what to do. I could just sit here and relax. And by doing that, you're doing actually the right object of meditation. Is by seeing that I don't have to figure out what to what meditation to do. I could just sit and relax, which is the meditation. And it sounds like you're kind of saying that you basically don't have to do strict sit-down meditation unless that's something that you want to do that makes you feel good, right? And it does have the aspect of skill development. 
sit down meditation does. Mm -hmm. If you're doing the sit down meditation correctly, but 90% of the time that people do sit down meditations, they're not getting any more out of it than people who are doing sit down casino meditations or fire meditations. So how do you do it correctly? Well, gosh, what have we been talking about for the past 30 minutes? And that is, is that you really look at what's going on and make a choice and throw the unwholesome stuff out of the mind. Okay, okay. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, <laughs> and bring joy in. Yeah. Don't expect the fire casino to make you joyful. Expect that you're going to make yourself joyful with or without the fire glowing. Okay. So that's skillful. That's skillful. That's the skills, right? That's the skillful way of doing it is, is to remove the unwholesome thoughts and replace them with wholesome thoughts. Which means the skill is, is the skill of recognizing whether a thought is wholesome or not. Because a lot of students will say, well, how do I know what's a skillful thought and what's an unwholesome skillful thought? And the answer to that is determining it as skillful or unskillful is a skill to be developed. And as you examine thoughts more and more and, and examining the same thought, feel, thought, feel, thought, feel complex, you begin to recognize that a whole lot of thoughts that you used to thought would be okay to have. Now you recognize that they too are unwholesome. Yeah. And then when like they arise, you can just throw them out. Just throw them out and come back to a wholesome thought. Mm-hmm. It really is that easy. So I guess, so when it comes to all these techniques, could you, would you say these techniques are like, like a, uh, like a base, a base to, to practice no, that? No, no, here's a way of looking at it. Okay. Looking at it like this, that the teachings of the Buddha, the entire Buddha Dhamma, including the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, the Triple Gem, the Triratana, Patita Samuppada, Anapanasati, the Eightfold Noble Path, all of that stuff is in a mosaic or a jigsaw puzzle. And that Buddhism is delivered in the West as a great big box full of mosaic tiles with instructions. Or it's a jigsaw puzzle that's been broken apart and 500 or 1,000 pieces are sitting there in the box. And all you've got is a picture of the puzzle on the outside. That's Western Buddhism. That's Well, that's all of Buddhism, but the point about Western Buddhism is, is that the jigsaw puzzles these guys are putting together, they haven't gotten the whole puzzle put together yet. You just got they one piece. It. Well, they've got a few pieces. Uh-huh. But they've got a few pieces missing. That's the point. They're, they're, they're pe- some of the pieces are missing. Mm-hmm. And when you see the whole package, you recognize, oh, this is just one little thing. Yeah, it's easy peasy. I've got it. I understand it. But people will take bits and pieces and features of it. So back to the elephant. This is what we're talking about is, is that, yeah, Western Buddhism is a whole bunch of Western people 
fondling Buddhism in a little area and think that they understand the whole show. Mm -hmm. I mean, some people uh, fondle a part of the bull elephant and come away thinking, hey, in order to be a Buddha, you got to have balls. (laughs) 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 But since most people don't investigate that very well, they don't even understand that, uh, yeah, that rogue elephant's got balls. And that's where the quality of the Buddha comes in. You know, the Buddha was known as a lion. He was also known as a bull. And in this case, it's not a bull like a cow. It's a bull like a bull elephant. Would you say he was like a monkey? No, I would say like he was the biggest gorilla in the tree. Okay. Whatever tree. Like he was really tough. Right. Okay. Remember that he was a prince. He was a warrior prince. He was a warrior prince, exactly. He was skilled in all the martial arts. He knew archery. He knew elephant training. He knew horse training. He knew all of that. That when he left the castle, if it was a castle, I think it was just a wooden barn that he lived in, but we've got him prince-like to have castles. He carried a groom, or he took a groom and a horse with him. Chanda was the name of his groom. He gave the horse freedom. And Chanda stayed with him. Didn't he have a kid? And he like named it yeah, Federer? Yeah, hollow that was later. We'll talk about Rahula at a later time. Okay, okay. <laughs> okay. No, we're talking about that there were uh, uh, great success stories. That he was on top of his world when he left. And mm-hmm. when he went out into his uh, spiritual practice, he could meet or exceed anything that any teacher gave him to do. And then he would leave because he felt that too was unsatisfactory. But he developed a huge number of skills along the way. And he sat down and he figured out that, hey, there is something to some of these practices. But the real issue is that we've got to see the crap in our mind and throw it out. That's the real major change that the Buddha said. That's the real path is we've got to make a change. When? As soon as we see it. When do we see it? As soon as we remember to look. Yeah. Yeah. It's not in 50 years. Right now. Right now. Right now. Right now. Look at it right now. This is it. Look at what you're doing. And when you look and look and look and see and see and see and know and know and know, those <laughs> elephant testicles start to grow. Because <laughs> you know that you know and you know that what you're saying is correct and you've got great backup. You've got backup from your lineage, from your own teachers. You've got backup from the sangha that you're in and the other monks around. You've got backup from the suttas. You know that you know when you've got good backup solid, full-on evidence that you know what you're saying is correct. Only then can you actually have the confidence to teach the Dhamma. That's what real point about one of the talks with Dan and I was. Uh, You were talking about like who can teach the authentic Dhamma, right? Yeah, who can teach the authentic Dhamma. Anybody can teach the authentic Dhamma. These dogs teach authentic Dhamma. Oh, yeah. The question is, is are you going to be the lion of the Buddha that can teach the Dhamma? Right. Yeah. 
who really knows the actual correct way of practice. And you know that you know the correct way of practice. And so that's what my job is to instill in you that confidence that you know that you're practicing correctly, and then you don't have any questions. <laughs> that would be good. That would be good. Yeah. Yeah. So just drop the questions and see and know. Huh. That makes sense. Yeah. These questions are an irrelevancy, not a relevancy and just like it, there it is. I bet we don't care, ignoring it. But rather, no, questions are a rat hole. Yeah. Yeah. While the mind is questioning, it's not satisfied right then and there. You think that's like 100% any, any questioning is dissatisfaction? Well, yes. And it's your job to know that this mm -hmm. question is unsatisfying. Uh. So that maybe you can see and do something about that. Like one thing is, is that I don't know and I can't find the answer to that now. So why should I think about it? I can drop that question because I don't have the answer. Mm -hmm. And we drop it. Or do we yeah. have to invent something and try to say, oh, if I think and figure in and worry long enough, I might be able to dream up an answer. No, nah, just gone. Yeah, that's a lot of work. No, yeah. I can do it without it. I don't need that. I have enough information right now to practice correctly. Okay. And so we begin then to develop the skill of being satisfied. Because questioning is developing the skill of being satisfied, hoping that answers will make us satisfied. No. Questioning just gives us a habit of more questioning and more questioning. And yeah, we get a little satisfaction when we get this answer, but then we got more questions. When are we going to change that whole system into learning to be satisfied without the answers? Yeah. Yeah. Hey, I don't have to know whether George Bush or uh, um, Arnold Palmer are going to win the presidency. I don't care. Not my problem. That's everybody with the uh, with the Google now. Everybody's addicted to to information. You know, everybody's got to look everything up. Yeah. My whole family, everybody. Well, we were taught that in a prison that you call grammar school or primary <laughs> school. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a skill, but it's used unwisely because we're not taught how to use that skill. And so you wind up having a whole society full of people that want to know and want to get, get it, and are still dissatisfied and want more. Or when a bunch of uh, yeah, yeah. When are you going to just start learning to be satisfied? Give yourself the pie that you won. You did win the teddy bear at the uh, uh, crap shoot. 
at the fair, take your teddy bear, hug it, and go home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Be satisfied with what we've got. That's the idea. Yeah. It's good to be. It's good to learn things, though, right? It's good to like. Ah, but how do we learn things? We don't learn things by questioning. We learn things by observing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Bangle got you that one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and while we're questioning, we're generally not learning. That when a student has got a question on his mind while I'm talking, that question on his mind will prevent him from hearing the answer to it while I'm telling him before he asks the question. Uh-huh. But he's got the question on his mind, so he doesn't even hear the answer to the question because he's too busy having questions rather than open to the answers. Yeah. So in that regard, questions. Now, another one would be um, before we make a choice or before we take an action, we don't have enough information to act upon yet. Can we happily ask questions, gather more information so we know where to go, what to do, which I do all the time. I ask students a lot of questions mm-hmm. because I'm looking for information on how to deal with them in the moment rather than trying to make up something and taking off with that, which I like to do also. So there is use and value for questions, but not while you're sitting in the meditation hall with the intention of practicing meditation. Right, right, right. Kind of like uh, are similar to questioning. Questioning is a skill, or finding information is a skill. Mm-hmm. Just like if someone were to body scan twenty four hours a day, or like or like focus on their breathing all the time. It can't be done. Nobody does. Oh yeah, yeah. But you know what I'm saying. Like, All right, you're using. Western language that has eternalism built right into the language with every's and always and pure and perfect. I mean, our vocabulary is just riddled with impossibilities. Uh-huh. <laughs> so instead of saying he's watching his breath all the time or she's scanning her body all the time, why don't you say that, yeah. She's been scanning her body. She's scanning. Okay, so now you've got somebody body scanning. That doesn't mean they're going to do it forever. How is she going to, while she's body scanning, stand up, walk out of the meditation hall to to lunch, fill her bowl full of food while she's in the line, and then sit down and eat the food? She can't do any of that if she's fully intent on watching body scans. But what do so you, that, I'm not saying, I'm not talking about people doing it all day. That's impossible. I, I that's agree. That's what you just said. No, I misspoke. I misspoke then. 
I, what I'm, I listen. That's the whole point. Is I what I'm asking? What no, what I'm asking is, what do you think of people who, who, who just follow these techniques and make progress, if they're not doing anapanasati or, 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 or throwing things out? They're not doing that's that. That's the question. Are they making progress? And mm. what is progress according to what standards? Mm -hmm. I know of people who have lived in meditation retreat facilities, first paying a lot of money to get in and then stayed after their time. But I don't know if they're making what progress or not. Until I can see. Basically, um, this is something interesting. When I was very, very young, there was a joke about how does a child learn to repair a bicycle? How does he learn to use the pliers? How does he learn to uh, use a screwdriver? That kind of thing. Okay. Right? And the answer is always is, is that you got to hold your mouth right in the sense of screwing. You know, you got to get really into it. You got to really hold your mouth right to get that thing done. Okay. So, in the meditation hall, the only way to do meditation, you got to learn to hold your mouth right. In a great big grin. But in order to hold the mouth right, you got to hold the mind right. In a great big grin. And in order to keep just the grin on your face, you have to have the whole body devoted to that grin. So the whole yeah. body is sitting there grinning. The whole feeling is sitting there grinning. The um, uh, the whole mind is sitting there grinning. And the thoughts that we're having are grinning thoughts. And that's when we're actually uh, in a wholesome state that the Buddha would call sama area samati or right organization of mind. Okay. Okay. So when you're talking about only the body scanning or only on the breathing, I'm talking about, no, we're talking about a state of mind. Mm -hmm. And that state of mind has the quality of a grin. Okay. Perhaps even a snicker, but a grin will do. <laughs> I try grinning when I sit down to meditate and uh i can't i can't hold it too long like my my muscles get ah, tired but notice that you haven't been developing the muscles of smiling and grinning uh, and also when you're doing it consciously watch whether you're holding the smile which puts tension into it an example of that is hold your hand out and hold it still. If you held your hand out and hold it still, it will become tense. It will start to waver. You yeah. begin to see, uh, yeah, your, ten your, your tension is growing. I'm not holding my hand still. I'm relaxing my hand. Uh, the intention is relaxing rather than holding. <laughs> Relax your grin. Okay. Ah, just relax. Relax the grin too, rather than holding the grin. Mm -hmm. And also notice that the, the tension comes 
And then the tiredness comes, which means that the tiredness is showing that you haven't exercised the muscles of grinning very much, that you haven't been to the gym of grin. (laughs) (laughs) And when you practice grinning a whole lot, it becomes really easy to do it for a while without getting tired, especially when you're doing it relaxed rather than doing it, holding it intentionally. Yeah. And so that's the key to not just the grand, that's also the key to holding the mind is stop trying to hold it, just let it relax. Stop trying to hold the body still, just let the body relax. There's this guy on YouTube who uh, posts like four hour or eight hour videos of himself just sitting in the lotus position, smiling, like big grin, just without moving for four hours. Okay. How confident are you that the those videos have been edited before they were uploaded? It's all raw footage. No, so he 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 lives he live streams them, you know. And uh, he he's done like hundreds and hundreds of videos, Mm -hmm. and there's like a lot of different. um, Here's a question for you: How many people sit right along with him happily versus how many people see that and get jealous? Uh, I don't think people do either because it's not, he's like, I don't think he's talked about much in meditation or Buddhist circles. He's more of a performance artist. Yeah. Okay. So there's one, there's one episode where his apartment gets robbed, like while he's in the middle of it and he, and he stays in position, he stays smiling and sitting. I can do that too. Yeah. Yeah. So after you have the skill, then it may be also useful to have the wisdom to know when to apply the skill and not. Be honest with you, I was once kicked out on an apartment. What for? Because I was just sitting there when the landlord came in and it freaked him out. (laughs) Did you pay rent? He wasn't there for the rent. But were you paying the rent? Yeah, that wasn't the issue. So he just didn't like that you were sitting? He didn't like that it freaked him out that I was in a state of meditation such that I was not about to move just because <laughs> he was in the room. I wasn't paying attention to him. <laughs> and I was unwise. I should have paid attention to this dude. He got right in my face trying to figure out what was going on, and I just sat there grinning at him. <laughs> Didn't move much of a muscle at all. <laughs> but did you notice him? I sure I noticed him. I know he's okay. there. Okay, okay. I'm not, yeah, people don't go that out of it. I didn't die. <laughs> <laughs> And like I Why? said, that was a very unwise thing to do because I could prove that I could. <laughs> to yourself or to him? <laughs> well, I didn't I didn't have an object. I don't remember at that time. It was a long time ago, way back in the 1970s. 
had oh, already man. developed those kind of skills. I mean, there's nothing to it. Yeah, what's uh, or I've been interested in that, like the the strong determination sitting, people who sit for <laughs> hours and hours. What's with that? Yeah, what's with that? <laughs> I heard the story about a guy who would just like sit that like that for twelve hours and then go take a pee and then sit like that for another twelve hours. I know I've seen him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's a lot of them. They, uh, I've I've seen them uh, in in Burma. For some reason, they all tend to go to Burma to do that. Okay. Yeah, he might have been Burmese. If there were visitors to the temple, he would he would like help them out or if someone needed help. But other than that, he would just sit. Well, that's how I live, too. That's what you do? Yeah, I just sit here. Yeah, but you're talking to me. Yeah, but you're like the visitor who came to the village and so or to the temple. And so I'm taking care of you. Yeah, I take care of my students. Yeah, but if I weren't here, would you just be sitting? Well, I don't know. I'd sit a lot doing nothing, just enjoying. No practice. Nice. No, no practice needed. No skills needed. You just, wow, what a beautiful morning. Huh? No place to go, nothing to do. <laughs> but it's a skill to be developed. And the skill is what? Well, there's a whole actually set of skills. And and like I said, the important one is the wisdom of knowing when to put some skills together. In other words, sati, to look up, wake up, right. look at what's going on so that you can deal with it wholesomely. And when you wake up and there's nothing going on, you can say, hot dog, I could do this. <laughs> nothing happening. <laughs> <laughs> There's nothing going on but me and the kookaburra. Yeah. There he is again. I hear a motorbike and some noise voices in the distance. But yeah, there's just nothing happening. The other car and the kookaburra again. Now the dog just rolled over, so now she's actually co completely covering the top of my right foot. And now she's licking my left foot. <laughs> oh, nice. <laughs> and there's nothing to do and no place to go. I don't have to move a foot. Nice. So that's the place to, to come to by practicing going there often. For a short period of time, and then the mind wanders away. Never mind, come back and just sit. Everything's all right. Mm -hmm. Anything that comes to mind can be changed or thrown out. Yeah. But you see that there's a lot of different little skills built into that. Then, in fact, the skill of sati. Uh, right investigation, right effort, and right uh, um, attitude are only the foundation 
for the skill of getting into the first jhana. And so the next skill is the skill of being able to maintain the first jhana. And only after those skills are fully developed can you develop the third skill, which is the proper way of coming out of the first jhana, because almost always the way for people to come out of the first jhana is by crash landing back into their hindrances that they would say is ordinary reality, rather than the reality that exists that we can create in our own mind. So these are a whole bunch of the skills that we're talking about. The ability, as we're speaking about, is, is the ability to just sit. But by him just sitting, he's not doing much of any good for anybody. I mean, the camera that's uh, focused on him is not getting any value out of it. YouTube itself is not getting any value out of it. The question is, who are the watchers of the videos? Are they getting anything out of value? Is he giving inspiration? Is he giving uh, right attitude? Hey, you can just sit here like me. I think so. I think uh, see, I'm asking a lot of questions about it because I don't know. I don't see any value much. I mean, how how long are people going to sit? If he said if you say that he will sit for eight hours, how many people are going to sit and watch him sit for eight hours? Not probably Almost very, very probably few none. people are going to be doing a whole lot of clicking fast forward or down to the next uh, 10 seconds or whatever like that over and over again. And maybe spend maybe 30 minutes at best watching eight hours of video. Maybe putting it at double speed. Yeah. There's all kinds of things that people will do with a video where nothing is happening. People are looking for action. Yeah, there's not much action. There's one what? where his apartment gets robbed mm -hmm. and then they leave because they just see him sitting there and they're like, what's going on? And they get scared and leave. Kind of like what happened with you. <laughs> and then there's one where there's one where there's one where he, he his like girlfriend broke up with him or something. So like three hours in, he starts sobbing really violently he starts crying and he's ah, still smiling so he's not just sitting there yeah he's not just sitting well of course not of course not he's just some guy no, he's got girlfriend on his mind yeah 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 and then there's one where he's it's What's good that? that he had to i say that's interesting it's good that he had the courage to publish that video to show that all he's doing is is just demonstrating strong determination. He's not demonstrating that he's uh, just sitting. Yeah. That it's, he's yeah, it's, it's a strong he's, determination thing. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. It's all about that. I know. I've been there, done that. Is, so you think that's useless? Yeah. And it's got bent, it's got tension built into it because of the strong determination. You want to go back to the example of the hand of holding oneself still? Yeah. It's got tension built right in mm. rather than just relaxing. And if you're just relaxing, then are you keeping a timer on how long are you relaxed? Or are you just going to relax? Yeah. Actually, that kind of happens lately when I sit down, like... 
I'll do 10 minutes. Uh-huh. And I followed your advice. I've been doing like several 10 minute bursts. Great. Throughout the day. And that's pretty good. That's pretty good. I like that. Ah. But well, sometimes. Getting benefit out of it. That's good. Yeah, yeah. Go ahead and say yes, the yes but coming. But. But, but some, sometimes but, uh, after the 10 minutes, I hear the timer go off and I'm like still into it. So I just sit down for another five, 10 minutes. Oh, like I stay well, sitting. this has got nothing to do with timers then, does it? Yeah, yeah. Forget about the timer. Yeah. <laughs> right. But yeah. you do have to sit down and practice correctly long enough to get yourself into a really good state. And then the question is, is that why should I get out of this simply because some timer went off? Yeah, exactly. That, that was set in the past. Yeah. So it's just a machine doing its job. Why is it now my boss? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> then, in fact, the timer might be broken and didn't go off for eight hours. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I'm there yet. (laughs) (laughs) What you're saying now is that you trust your clock more than you do your own mind. Am I? Is that what I'm saying? Yeah, think about it. No, that's that's the op. I'm saying sometimes the timer goes off and I stay meditating. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. So I go by my own mind, not the timer. Right, okay, right. But when you set the timer, what thought did you have? Well, when I set the timer, <laughs> I want to make sure I sit down for long enough. <laughs> oh, okay. That's important, too. All right. Well, um, then why don't you set until you feel like that it's long enough? Instead of thinking, oh, it's going to take 10 minutes in advance. So this is the next point. You don't need a 10-minute timer. You need to sit down and stay there long enough practicing correctly until you get yourself into a really, really good state. And then why leave? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And practice that now six or seven times a day because you won't be able to stay in it long. Your hindrances in the form of what you call reality mm-hmm. will have its own timer to set. Someone will come into the room to rob you. Or thoughts of the girlfriend will come up. Yeah. Or yeah. you have to go pee. I got to go pee. Right. So we have to take care of things. The question is now, can I get up happily and go take a pee happily and then come sit back down happily and maintain that first jhana during the pee process? Really standing in front of that urinal? Ah, that feels so good. Ah, what a relief it is to let go. I do notice ever since I started meditation, sitting down formally, every little things feel better. I can get that like little things, more gratification, more fulfillment in small things 
fuller experience. You're seeing more things and the more you see, the more satisfied you get. But the more we think, the more dissatisfied we get. Yeah. So looking instead of talking is the right way to go. Especially if we're looking at the talking. (laughs) Do you know what the talku system is? Are you talking about where the monks go up the hill with a bag full of goodies looking for a young kid that they seem promising? And then give him the bag of goodies. And when he plays with one, we say, oh, he must be this Rinpoche or that Rinpoche. Is that the toku system you're talking about? Where they talk the mothers into giving up their kids that the mom's not about to give her, her kid to that monk until she's told that this your child is special enough. Now give him to us. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about. Yeah. Oh, I, like I the Dalai Lama, isn't he basically a toku? Or is he different? No, he is actually renounce, renouncing the Tolku system. Oh, really? Yeah. He was brought up in it. But like uh, being uh, brought up with Ledbetter, Krishnamurti actually excommunicated himself from the uh, theopicist. So the Dalai Lama has excommunicated himself from the Tolku. Okay. You don't know about the story of Krishnamurti? No, I... Never mind. Well, he's dead now. It doesn't matter. Jay Krishnamurti? Yeah, the old one from the 1880s. The Indian guy? Yeah, right. I know about him, but I don't know his story. Okay, all right. Well, we don't have to go into it then. No, never mind, because we've got the example of the Dalai Lama, who is, by the way, a good friend of my teacher, Bhikkhu Buddhadasa. Wait, Have so you seen Krishna, that video? Krishnamurti was Toku system? No, no. Krishnamurti's got nothing to do with it. He was a different example of someone renouncing the lineage that they had been trained in. Oh, what was he trained in? The opposite. With uh, uh, Colonel Alcott and Ledbetter and... Um, uh, Madame Blomsky, transcendentalism, that whole oh. stuff about the 1880s, that was a Buddhism that came to the West. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. But let's not go into that. It's, it's not important. Yeah, okay. That's fine. Okay. The, what is important is, is that when uh, um, systems find uh themselves not working anymore then those who are somewhat to do with those systems are if they're wise they'll make a change rather than keep doing the same old thing over and over again well what happened was is that the punch and llama was pinched by the chinese mm-hmm. and that they intend to when this Dalai Lama dies they're going to come up with their own Dalai Lama. And this Dalai Lama knows that and says, we got to put a stop to this. Otherwise, there's going to be two of them. Yeah. Competing. 
for who yeah. which one's which. So he says, I'm not coming back. I'm not. I'm not going to give the Chinese an opportunity to try to take over our religion by coming up with a kid that they've got trained to take my place. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Remember that the Dalai Lama sees Vikabuddha Dasa. This on the the, the the video is is that the Dalai Lama sees Vikabuddha Dasa is his elder brother in the Sangha. Oh yeah, yeah, I knew about that. Okay, mm-hmm. well that's it. In other words, the Dalai Lama knows about rebirth. He's yeah. just not out there harping on how harmful the belief system is. The, the way that Bhikkhu Buddhadasa is talking for since, well, for, since, <laughs> since the 1930s, 100 years now, how harmful belief in reincarnation actually is. Is it harmful? Why is it harmful? Because if people say, get the idea, oh, that means I'll have a better life next time, mm. then they won't bother to do anything about it right now. Okay. And by the way, all of reincarnation that has been labeled rebirth by Buddhists, but in fact, it's just the same old belief. In fact, I could challenge you by saying, I bet you don't even know the difference between rebirth and reincarnation. So I'll just use the word reincarnation. So that's what the belief is. They can dust it up, pedal it off, paint it white, and call it rebirth. But it's the same old belief system that the deep, dark past has something to do with the present moment. And the deep, dark future controls your life now. Or that what you're doing now will control the deep, dark future. Mm -hmm. Neither one of those things are correct. The Buddha says not only get out of the deep, dark past, get out of the immediate dark past. But if he says be here now, then 10 years ago is irrelevant. 15 years ago is irrelevant. 15 lives ago is even more irrelevant. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this present moment. Let's live in this present moment. Let's stop with these silly beliefs about Toku. That it's a really good way for the old monks in Tibet to get fresh young meat to train correctly. But that system's Falling apart, doesn't work anymore. Let's go find young monks some other way where we can't, uh, have, where we don't have to deal with the fact that the Chinese are up to our stick. The Chinese are on to it and they're about to abuse it. The only way to change it is by changing it. Yeah, change the system. Change the system. Let's not have Toku. We don't need it. We don't need the Chinese to appoint the next Dalai Lama. And that would be bad. Why? Because it's just their puppet, basically? Well, it would be their puppet. Yeah. Yeah, the, the right Chinese now, government's the, puppet. The, right. Right now, the the present current Dalai Lama is nobody's puppet. Right. The Dalai Lama is just hey, his own he, thing. 
remember the elephant story. He's got his own <laughs> one set of balls. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So <laughs> that's one of the things that be, people are so impressed about with the Dalai Lama is he's got cojones. Oh yeah. 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 And the and the uh, the Chinese cannot run him. Oh yeah. Yeah, they can't do it. So they want the next Dalai Lama to be under their thumb. And this guy with the cojones says, hey, man, these cojones are not coming back. They're not returning. Not with a Chinese paint job. (laughs) (laughs) And I know because I've seen some of the comments on that talk about uh the tulku system which one some people, well uh the the guru viking stuff oh okay yeah that the comments are that people really hate me when i expose that stuff really yeah they can't stand it you say oh you don't know anything about the tulku systems because we believe that those trinkets that the guy played well here's one of the examples of that that there was one of the tulku monks who went around in his teenage years saying, oh, I remember that piece of furniture and I remember that piece of furniture. And this guy walking around pointing out that this furniture that this kid is remembering that he had in his past life, we know the manufacturer of that furniture and when it was manufactured and the facts don't make that he's (laughs) making this stuff up. This piece (laughs) of furniture is far newer than what he's claiming it to be. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, guess what? That happened with me also with a tree. Because oh, I yeah? absolutely have the memory that my uh, of my grandfather planting this big pecan tree. It's big now when we're talking about it, but I remember him planting it. Mm-hmm. And my mother pointed out that, no, you weren't even born when that uh, pecan tree was planted. I know because I was a teenage girl at the time. And I had no argument with her. Yeah, because I can't prove it one way or another, but I had to trust that, yeah, she knew what was going on because she was a teenager. And all I remember is an early memory of my grandfather planting a tree. It must have been this tree. And my mom says, no. Exactly the same story. If we begin to recognize we cannot trust our own memory, that we need to go back and do a new investigation or drop the topic. Yeah, it's irrelevant. It's irrelevant. The Toku system is irrelevant. Drop it. You don't need it. The Dalai Lama thinks the same. We we can drop that one. We don't need it now. Yeah. Yeah. You know, some kid from Germany, he, he, his dream his whole life was to go be a monk in Tibet, and he got to go do it when he was like okay. 15. So? That's, that's better than the Toku. Find find yeah. some enthusiastic youngster, you know? Yeah, precisely. And some of those old wise uh, Toku Tibetan monks will somewhere whisper in his ear, I remember who you are. <laughs> and off they go down that Toku hole, rabbit hole again. Only this time you've got an enthusiastic teen who will really buy the trip. Yeah. And then he'll live up to it happily. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
or delusionally, his choice. I think it's a good working assumption that it's just a delusion because it's just unprovable, doesn't help anything. It just doesn't help. That's right. the bottom well, line. Well, isn't that true about all magical powers and all magical beliefs? Anything that cannot be demonstrated within the next five to ten minutes yeah. and is considered now irrelevant in your life. Yeah, like mystical experiences, magical powers, all that stuff. Or even the corner bank in town. What do you mean? I mean, you think about going to the bank, but you're sitting at home, and that bank doesn't exist here. Yeah, yeah. For, yeah. It's, mm -hmm. it's just, just a magical bank. It's not real until I walk into it or I approach it in the car. Until then, it doesn't exist. And if we can see magical powers that way, that yeah, when I get to the magical power, I'll inspect and investigate thoroughly. But until that magical power presents itself into my reality, I'm not going to bother with it. Because what or I bother with is my own delusion, not reality. Yeah. Or if it's gone forever, there's no point in no, dwelling on it. No, no point. And yet that's the whole point that the Buddha is trying to teach about greed as the reason for a dukkha. That's the second noble truth, that the things that we want. So if someone is practicing Anapanasati for the intention of getting magical powers, he's going to be thoroughly and completely and continually over and over again disappointed because he's not getting the magical powers that he wants. And if he'd stop wanting things and just relax, he would begin to develop some skills that would turn up being power. He can develop the skills that gains power, but so long as he wants magical power and going to fire casinos and all kinds of stuff like that, he's not going to get anything other than just more wanting. Yeah. He might, in fact, turn into a charlatan and start telling people that he can do what he wants to do and make some money off of it. They call him a spiritualist. Right. Palm readers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Tarot card readers. Been there, done that. Made some money off of it too. Made some people feel really good and got some money, but I stopped doing it because I was a charlatan and I could see that it was a charlatan. But what about a Dan Ingram type dude who's like so into the magical power and all the concentration and maps and all they that stuff? He see clearly what's going on. Can he? Will he look? Can he remember to look? Yeah. Yeah. A better question that I would ask is, is he a happy dude? He always presents himself that way to me. I get along with Dan really great. I don't care what he's into or what he wants. Yeah, he seems pretty happy. When he's with me, he doesn't want anything. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know what Dan wants. I don't care. 
that in I fact see. I have had students insist that I listen to their story when their story is irrelevant. Yeah. It's just hindrances. They think that their story is special. Or that you listening to their story is going to somehow help, right? Change or change what you have to say to them, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, I mean, I could go on about all my, all my random, you know, out of body experience, mystical experience, all that stuff. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I do see that there's no point. It's not going right. to help anything. Yeah, because all you're going to get from me with any of that is, yeah, I've been there, done that too. Yeah. <laughs> 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 it was actually it was like mostly this year that all that kind of stuff or not this year 2021 all that stuff happened to me and it was very distracting very distracting and it took me a while to just kind of like move past it and just forget about it mm -hmm. well and in some cases for some people that moving past and through all of that stuff is very long and slow. Right. And that's when they give themselves a dark night of the soul rest because they still really want it. Yeah, they're still in wanting. Still, yeah, and, and some of us can just get over that. Finally, oh, I don't have to want any of that stuff. I can be happy without it. Mm -hmm. I can be powerful without it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, or you know, you know Shinzen Young, maybe. I've heard the name. He says that's one of the common traps on the path to enlightenment is uh, the the trap of the powers, the realm of the powers. People ah, get in a way you could say that's the that's the trap. That you most think? people start off already in because isn't magical powers and rebirth and reincarnation deeply interrelated? Yeah. Okay. They're deeply interrelated in the sense of how valuable, how powerful, how real, and all of that kind of stuff are. But in fact, they're just the same thing delusional thinking. Yeah. Wanting something we don't have. Yeah, like the. So you know if I can said, be satisfied with when I don't have it and be completely satisfied, and then if it ever comes along, I'll be satisfied when it comes. Because my habit is satisfaction with what's real. Yeah. But people who want it are going to be dissatisfied until it comes, and they may uh, uh, dissatisfied until the cow come home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All that stuff is fringe, random. It's not quantifiable it's, you can't it's hindrance hindrance it's hindrance mm -hmm. wanting something you don't have yeah yeah i was thinking um <laughs> <laughs> or you know how you said reincarnation is like oppresses people because they're told like oh you don't need to worry about this life next life will be better it's kind of the same thing with christianity that this life is a big pilgrimage. It doesn't, you have to suffer through this life to get to like a heaven, you know? Mm -hmm. 
It's like right, similar. Exactly. It's like, it's like the same thing. You have to suffer to get to heaven. Heaven yeah. will be the reward for your heaven will suffering. come later. Mm-hmm. Exactly yeah. so. Now, here's an interesting thing, that if they are practicing being miserable, then when they get to heaven, won't they continue to practice being miserable even when they're in heaven? No, they think it'll go away. Well, the suffering's not going to go away because the suffering is the habit of the mind. We don't need the heaven to feel good. Then, in fact, most people are living in a paradise and they don't know it, and so they feel bad. I mean, the same thing happened to Adam and Eve. There they were in paradise, and what they started to do, they started to complain. Yeah, that's what eating of the fruit of the of the uh, the tree of of good and evil is all about. Is they started to seeing things as evil, they started to complain, and they destroyed their own paradise. Yeah, tree of knowledge. Fruit of knowledge of good and evil. Knowledge of good and evil. Yeah. Yes, the, yeah. the knowledge of good and evil or right and wrong or bad and good or magical powers versus no powers. And or all duality. That, the duality. Yeah. We, we destroy our um, paradise with duality. Mm-hmm. And in this case, it's the duality is I don't have magical powers and I want magical powers. The duality is magical powers versus no magical powers. And I'm saying I can be happy with and without it. And the other guys are saying I cannot be happy without it. That is the trap that people start off in. Yeah. And many of them never get out of that trap. What is the trap? The trap of wanting someone else to do the work that we need to do for ourselves. Oh, I cannot save myself, but if I had magical powers, then my magical powers would save me. If I had a plastic Jesus riding upon the dashboard of my truck, then that plastic Jesus will keep my car from making, or my truck from crashing. But if I don't have the plastic Jesus, the car is just going to track crash right into the tree. And then I can say the tree bit my car. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that tree jumped right out in the road and bit my car. But that wouldn't have happened if I'd have had a plastic Jesus riding on the dashboard. <laughs> That's magical thinking. And we spend quite a lot of time in magical thinking, and we wind up being disappointed generally. Magical or superstitious? Superstitious is another word for it. Religious. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the way that I say that is, is that I'm stitious, but I'm not superstitious. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's be stitious. Let's look. Let's investigate. Let's see what's going on here. But not superstitious. Not superstitious. Superstitious (laughs) means that I'll just believe anything. Yeah. (laughs) Another, Another trap this guy says is the map trap. He says people get too obsessed with maps and progress and all this stuff. That's and, still and that, living in the past and the future. So that's a hindrance. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. In fact, some maps are quite good and quite valuable. Oh, yeah. 
If you don't have a map of a town, it's hard to get around. If you have a map of the town, you can get around, but you cannot rely solely on the map because the map is old and the town is always new. So the new potholes and the new roadblocks and the new traffic jams, they're not on the map. Mm -hmm. The map is not the territory, but a map can be a good guide to the territory. What happens with meditators is they start living the map and stop living in reality. Okay. That's in fact what we're doing and often when we uh, say, wow, this meditation is hard to do. Well, wow, this is hard to do. It's just an old map that the student has in his mind. He goes around saying, wow, a lot of things are hard to do. That's his habit of just making everything hard. Mm -hmm. Not following the reality, because the reality is this is dirt easy. All I have to do is set that map down, take a deep breath and enjoy the moment. But as long as I'm holding and clinging to that map, the map says this is hard work. Meditation's a struggle. You got to strive, boy. Got to put in wrong kind of effort. And I mean, super wrong. See, those are the thoughts that we have, which prevent us from just being happy. That's following the map. Yeah, you got to put in wrong effort. Well, I was giving an example of how hard you have to work. That's part of that map that we can put down. The reality is, is that it's easy. The map says it is hard work. But would you say there's an element of failure? Like. Absolutely. You fail and over and over. Mm -hmm. Well, it doesn't matter how often we fail in order to get the victim's attitude. We kind of start off with the victim's attitude. Mm -hmm. We are born as a victim. Every infant is not able to take care of itself. The question is, as we grow up, will we ever come out of our victim's attitude or our victim's mentality that everything is hard, everything is brand new, it's tough. And every child begins to see life as hard work, tough. Parents are there to slap us around when we don't do what we're told to do. All kinds of things. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But reality is, is now you don't have to live in that map. You can create a new map. Life is easy peasy. I don't have any parents to slap me around. Ha ha. <laughs> I don't have to do things right according to them anymore. I can change my map. The maps we developed when we were a child and we developed those maps ignorantly. Mm -hmm. So now we can look at what's going on, see reality in the moment. Stop playing, stop following the old maps. Stop follow, playing the old tapes. Buddha has the word Siva Bhatta Paramasa. Attachments to rites, rules, and rituals is what we're talking about. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like meditation is hard. That's an old rule. But it's hard is an even older, more basic rule, and all we tacked on to it was the meditation. Changing a tire is hard work. The first time you do it, it is. But if you change tires for a living, you can change a tire in 15 seconds. Nothing to it. Got all the skills and all the tools you need. 
So you see, it's an attitude that we have to build as a skill. And when that attitude is fully blown, it's those cojones that we were talking about. Yeah. The attitude of, I can do this. Handle anything. I I can do anything I want to do, and I don't want to do anything. Therefore, I'm very good at doing nothing at all. (laughs) (laughs) That's something, uh, like, you kind of see a lot of, like, people in this community talk about like oh what if i awaken or whatever what if i awaken and and like what what will i do after i awaken like will i just Go do back nothing to sleep. <laughs> and what do you have to do after you go back to sleep wake up and what do you do after you wake up you go back to sleep yeah. Isn't that marvelous? <laughs> wake, sleep, wake, sleep, wake, sleep. You do that cycle every day, sometimes twice or three times a day. Mm-hmm. So if we can do that in actuality, we can also do that metaphorically or uh, let us say uh, virtually or uh, mentally. Mm-hmm. To wake up and then wake up and then wake up and keep waking up unremittingly. Keep waking up. You're still in that Western mentality of once you're woke up, you're always woke up, and that's that forever stuff again. Rather yeah. than everything is in cycles. Mm-hmm. Nothing is steady, nothing is still, everything is in turmoil. Sometimes you feel like a nut, and sometimes you don't. Yeah. So what's the difference between rebirth and reincarnation? There's nothing to it. In the sense that with reincarnation, there's something to it. In rebirth, there's nothing to it. In reincarnation, something is reincarnated. What is it that's reincarnated? I don't know. Ah, in rebirth, rebirth happens, but there's nothing that is rebirthed. There's nothing to be reborn. What is born is something new. It's not the same old thing that was before. Something new that's born. And it's reborn. And every time that something is reborn, something new is born. With reincarnation, though, it's the same old thing that's reborn. What is it that's the same old thing? What is it that's reborn? What is it that's reincarnated? Which means what is it that when death happened, it didn't die? Yeah, it just got reincarnated. Uh Uh-huh. I mean, the Christians have a word for this. What is it? Resurrection? No, it's called the soul. Oh, the soul. And the Buddha just admits we've got no soul. There's nothing to it. 
There is nothing more there in the body than the body. There is no person or soul in there. There's nothing in the feelings, just the feelings. There is no soul, no you in those feelings because they keep changing. There right. is no you in your mind or in your memory or in your processing ability, which mm -hmm. I mean by that consciousness, samsara or samkara and um, uh, uh, sanya or uh, namarupa. In other words, it's just perception, but you are not the perception. There is just your memories, but you are not those memories. They're just memories in a human mind and you are not the mind but whatever you are you can see the mind but when you see the mind now you see it as not you most people when they see the mind they think it's my mind it's me these are my thoughts i am these thoughts and in our language we even go so far as to use it like that like i am angry when the reality is is there is anger to be seen. No, it's my anger. I'm angry. I'm tired. I'm sick and tired of being sick and tired, I say. And it's always about I, me's, and minds. And so it's the I, the me, and the mind that is reincarnated. But really, there's nothing to the eyes, the knees, and the mind. They don't really exist. They're temporary. They come up, and they go down, they come up, and they go down. And guess what? When they come up again, it's not exactly the same one as it was that died before. It's a different one now. They're, you're different than you were when you were five years old. You're not the same. Yeah. Yeah. You don't have the same thoughts or feelings or worries or cares or anything. All of that stuff has changed. So why did we get the idea that I'm the same person that I was when I was five years old, when in fact there's nothing about you. Not one hair, not one freckle, not one wart, not one drop of water, not one molecule of anything is the same. Everything is new, everything has changed. Yeah. Yeah. So how can I possibly say I'm the same as I was five years old or worse still five centuries ago? That's the belief in a soul. A belief in a soul is, is that it's everlasting and unchanging. Anyone who has that attitude is has the attitude, I can't change. I've got to wait till the next life. Maybe circumstances will be better. Maybe I can find a heaven and then I'll feel good. Rather than no, I've got to create that heaven. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So that's the difference. One group is waiting on something on the outside to fix their broken little red wagon. Where the really good child or the playful child or, or whatever is going to be happy fixing and playing with his broken little red wagon. He doesn't need anybody to come fix it. Okay, so that's, this now is the main teaching of the Buddha in the sense of the ten fetters. This is the first one, personality view. Who are you is the question that people wrongly ask. That who am I is in fact an irrelevant question. What we need to see instead is what is dukkha and how can it be avoided? Because every time there is dukkha, that's where the self exists. 
the self is the one who experiences the dukkha as being unsatisfactory. That's yeah. the self. And so when we stop being dissatisfied, then we stop being selfish. And then we're not being reborn in that or another kind of selfishness. But that's what being reborn is selfishness. Mm -hmm. When we're not born as selfish, that means that now we begin to understand this first better. This personality view is, I can change. I'm not the same. I do have the ability to change. And it's up to me to change. So the next question is, am I up to the task? Can I do it? But that yeah. very first question that everybody has to ask is, who the heck am I going to get to fix my broken little red wagon? Because I can't do it my myself. I need magical powers. I need a plastic Jesus. I need the guru. Got to get enlightened. I got to get enlightened. Right. When I get enlightened, then I can be happy. Rather than recognize that when I am happy, I'm already liked. And when I don't have what I want, I'm heavy. And what am I heavy with? The things that I want that I don't have. And they burden me down. And so personality view rightly seen is, hey, I can change. And I can change in this moment. I do not have to continue thinking these unwholesome thoughts. We can change those thoughts. That those thoughts are not managed by some everlasting soul within. So that's the difference between rebirth and reincarnation. And another one is, is that rebirth can happen anytime and reincarnation is a great big deal. Requires moms and dads and doing things in the bed and babies getting born and all kinds of stuff. But rebirth, that happens in this instant. Right yeah, now. second to second. Second to second. Mm -hmm. And so when the Buddhist point, well, no, not that fast. Let us say tenth of a second to a tenth of a second. It generally takes about a half a second to go from everything is okay and oh, what the hell. Yeah, that's true. But it does take less time to do it than it does to talk about it. Talking about it takes 10 to 15 seconds. Yeah. Having that cycle happen is about the same time they, in fact, they use in the sutras that it takes the time for um, a strong man with good limbs to stretch his arm. Mm -hmm. Takes that long, about a half second. There it is. That's how long it takes to go from heaven to hell. <laughs> but guess what? It only takes that same half second to come back out of hell into heaven again. You can die to that hell. So, can you just let everything die? Just, oh, there it goes. 
Nothing to it. But I don't need anything to be happy. And I can practice that so that I can, no matter what it is that I want, I can stop wanting it long enough to recognize I don't need it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you recognize for sure over and over again that you don't need it, then you gain the confidence, hey, I can handle anything. Hey, I can handle anything. I can throw anything, any rubbish at all that comes into my mind, I can throw it right back out. Including when you're in front of a policeman having the thought, this cop is dangerous. I can throw that thought, thought out and put, this cop's my friend. Yeah. In instead. And imagine the differences, the way that cop's going to treat me between being afraid of him and me being friendly with him. So I create my own reality with the thoughts that I have. Mm-hmm. And when we know that we can make that change, then we can handle anything. Yeah, any cop that, you know, any police officer dressed or otherwise, welcome on my porch. He can come with handcuffs and warrants if he wants to. I can handle that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And if he brings a big six shooter and shoots me, I can handle dying. Yeah. Yeah, I can handle that. I can I can die happily. I think if uh, someone came and pulled a gun on me and it's like was going to actually kill me, I think I'd be scared. I'd be scared. Realistically, realistically, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, that's because you're telling yourself that you don't have the skills to do it. Yeah. So you're already in unwholesome thoughts. Why don't you tell yourself instead that, hey, I can handle that? Well, I'd have no choice to handle, but to handle it, I I guess. Exactly, that's right. So you can either handle it badly when we're talking about it, or you can plan now. Oh, when somebody pulls a gun on me and is about to shoot me, I'm not going to be afraid. Mm -hmm. I can handle that. I can hand him my wallet. Oh, yeah, hand in my wallet, no problem. Right, but no, you're afraid of the gun. I'm afraid of the gun, yeah, I'm afraid yeah, of the you're gun. Afraid of the gun. <laughs> so can't you just hand him the wallet without being afraid of the gun? I can hand him the wallet because I think if I do that, he's not going to shoot, but I'm afraid if he... If you do handle him the wallet, in fact, if you if you fight with him, you live while you're fighting, but if you give him the wallet now, he'll shoot you now and you're dead. Better to fight. Stay alive a little while longer. <laughs> Me, I'm, I'm ready to go. <laughs> I'm not going to fight with him. <laughs> that's my uh, that's my dad's attitude. He's like really uh, like if anything bad happens to me, like like I'm ready to go. You know, if we're in some sort of terrible situation, I'll sacrifice myself willingly. You know, or if I get like like cancer, like stage four. Or something really bad like that, some terminal illness. Don't try to well, keep me alive. About that one, why would you bother eating yourself alive to the point that it's step four of eating yourself alive? That's what cancer really is, is eating yourself alive. Just like a heart attack is when your heart attacks you. 
Yeah. But if you have the right attitude, you're more or less immune from uh, cancer. Figuratively cancer and literally. Is both. In the sense that, it, but it takes wisdom or knowledge. For instance, if you know that asbestos in the lungs irritates the lungs and causes cancer, then that means that you're going to be very careful around asbestos. Yeah. Maybe even quit the job that you have where you're handling asbestos for some company. Right. That way you don't get cancer. That way you don't get cancer. And when you go around saying, hey, I'm going to keep my life safe. I'm not going to be handling things that cause me to um, eat myself alive. And so we don't take medicines. Because a lot of medicines have carcinogens in them. I mean, some some medicines even have little babies in them. I mean, that's what the uh, 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 what they call it, uh, uh, the anti-abortionists tell you. I'm just pulling your leg now. Wait, what medicine has little has babies in it? All of them. What? Yeah, all of them. I mean, they, they call that biological research, and they take uh, uh, dead babies out of mother's wombs and make medicine out of it. That's what the, that's one of the major problems. Uh, problems that the uh the christians have is they don't want to take the medicine because the medicines are made out of dead babies that were aborted but that's not true well that's what they say you can't listen to those wacky people (laughs) but everybody's out there being wacky one way or the other that's true i'm pretty wacky No, we need to take keep our eyes open and watch for sure. And know the background of each education that we're taking to know what it does and what the research behind it is and all of that kind of stuff. So getting information about medications is a whole lot different than just being afraid of something because it's got dead babies in it. Why do you know that? Because people on the street corner that just came out of the church have signs saying that your medicine has babies in it. I mean, this is common. They call it, what, stem cell research? Oh, yeah. 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 Yeah, that's it. Speaking of Christians, (laughs) let me run this by you, okay? (laughs) So, like, what do you think of the attitude that life is super precious? Like, let's say someone is in horrible pain. It is. No, let's say that this life, this moment for you is precious. Why aren't you appreciating the preciousness of this particular moment right now? Yeah, but what if someone has like a horrible disease and like they're suffering immensely, like horrible pain, horrible pain? Should we okay. just let them die or is it like should we should just make sure we try our hardest to keep them alive? Well, maybe we should teach them how to stop seeing their reality as painful. The word pain is a mental word and not a physical reality. The the physical reality is it's a sharp sensation, a dull sensation, a throbbing sensation, many different kinds of sensations that we have, a tingling sensation. Maybe you can define it even as an itching sensation. Yeah, but that's what I mean. Pain is a mental word. 
Yeah, but what if someone's in like a ton of physical pain? I don't like how I feel. Okay, so let's talk about then that we're sick and we don't like being sick. Yeah, like what if someone's in physical pain from being sick? You know. Okay, well, why don't we just lay there and lay still, recognizing, in fact, neck pain? That if I've got neck pain and I know that the neck pain is there, I can just hold my neck still. And in fact, I could even go to the hospital and get an appliance to hold my neck still. But I don't need to go to the hospital to get an appliance to hold my neck still. I can do that with my own mind by just making sure that I'm holding my neck still. Rather than moving my neck, causing pain and then not liking it and saying, oh, I got to do something about this. I got to go to the doctor. Right. But if you listen to the sensations of the body and do what the sensations of the body are asking, then you're treating that situation wisely. But most people, they don't train to, to handle sensations wisely. They want to get rid of them instead. Yeah. Um, my so dad used to, yeah. Yeah, so look at the mindset that you're coming from. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. that mindset is just a uh, a mental mindset that people work themselves into. All my pain is so bad, I need help, and I want you to kill me because I can't stand the pain. Well, now, the same thing happens whether that child has a physical pain, let us say, in the neck or in the back or somewhere in the kidneys or something like that, as opposed to the emotional pain of the bullies pick on her every day. Both of them wanting out. Both of them sometimes wanting out bad enough that they'll kill themselves. One because of the pain of the bullies picking on her and the other one the pain in the neck. Yeah. Yeah. What is pain for you that's going to prevent you from taking the next breath? Because that's when you die. You die when you stop breathing. Yeah. Yeah. So can you breathe through this pain, this sharp sensation that you're having in this moment? Can you take a deep breath and survive that one sharp pain? If yes, then you are alive. Yes. Then yes, you're alive. And if no, then you die. Yeah. <laughs> that the pain is too much for me to bother to take the next breath. Mm -hmm. That's exactly, by the way, the whole point of crucifixion. Imagine there you are nailed or wired up to the cross. Yeah. With all of the weight hanging down. The crown of thorns. Crown of thorns and it's hard to breathe. Yeah. Why is it hard to breathe? Because the way that you're stressed out puts pressure, downward pressure on the breathing. Yeah, so you can't breathe. Okay. Especially when you're hanging like that. In order to release it, and in fact, that's why the people uh, have their nails uh, or their, their feet nailed, or they have a little platform to stand up so that they can stand up, take some pressure off their arms so that they can take a breath. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But eventually it's going to be too much work to take that next breath. Time to go. I've had enough.
So okay. you have to hang there on the on the cross for seven days, struggling with the breath, or can you do it in three days and just say, "Hey, I'm out of here." <laughs> <laughs> okay okay how long are you going to cling when are you going to let go how much struggle are you going to put into the breathing yeah those yeah, yeah. are the kind of questions that we will eventually have to ask ourselves hold on hold the, on one second that moment. one moment <laughs> Okay, that call. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, that pretty much answers my question. Well, I'm glad to see that we're ending this on a smile. Of course, always. Of course. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been a good chat, Daniel. I've really enjoyed um, having an opportunity to uh, share the Dhamma. Yeah. Which also means that we have to look and listen to the kind of language that we use, because often we're using unwholesome language because we learned it from the culture. And we can use wholesome language instead. Unwholesome, like like forever or forever. eternal. Mm -hmm. okay. Or big, hard. Okay. Or we can use wholesome language. Or bad like, or good. Bad and good, rather mm -hmm. than everything's okay everything's fine yeah yeah okay so pay got, attention now you've yeah. got quite a, quite a lot to, of reading between the years to do <laughs> yeah remember to watch closely now yeah 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 <laughs> i got i got work tomorrow no you don't that's just another thought i got a job no, not right now. To go to. Tomorrow. Yeah, tomorrow. But you don't have to think about it now. Yeah, I'm just saying. Yeah, I know. That's what the point that I'm making. That is, yeah, you're thinking about going to work tomorrow. It's not a, it's not an unpleasant thing. I'm, well, it's I'm, going to destroy our conversation. Why? Because you're leaving, and I'm going to cry. I'm leaving anyway. I'm leaving anyway. <laughs> okay, that's right. You could leave without a reason. <laughs> Whether you've got a job tomorrow or not, it's okay to leave. Just leave on a high note. Ta -da! <laughs> I, I, this whole call was a high note. Just a constant high. <laughs> Excellent, Daniel. We'll see you later. All right, see you, Damaro. Thanks for calling. Okay, bye-bye. Bye-bye.